sets in early 1980s Canada, and it uh, concerns the head of a local television station, Channel 83, uh, named Max Wren, who is in charge of programming, and he is on the hunt for the next new, exciting, dangerous, subversive thing that will break through and really allow him to corner the local television markets. And he comes across this pirated broadcast called Videodrome, which is apparently nothing more than a program depicting the torture and murder of people in some sort of subterranean dungeon. And he decides that he's essentially going to be the guy responsible for bringing torture porn to television, and he orders his engineers at the TV station to begin copying and broadcasting Videodrome and discovers that it's actually parts of a very strange and very far-reaching conspiracy that he's now at the center of. Hello, and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jinx, your host, and that was Preston Fossil talking about David Cronenberg's 1983 sci-fi horror masterpiece, Videodrome. Mr. Fossil is an award-winning author. Make certain to check out Our Lady of the Inferno and the upcoming Beasts of 42nd Street. Mr. Fossil, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh yeah, thank you for having me. Now, as with every episode, I'll ask, out of any horror movie you might have chosen to discuss, any at all, why did you go with Cronenberg's Videodrome? A uh, couple of reasons. Uh, Videodrome is one of my all-time favorite horror movies. Uh, it's part of what I call my sacred six. Uh, people <laughs> ask me, what's your favorite horror film? And I'm the kind of asshole who responds, I don't have a favorite horror film. I have six favorite horror films. Because I'm right there with you. I've I've ne- yeah, yeah, you understand this. I think every horror fan secretly understands this, and they come up with a favorite horror film to be polite in conversation. But you, you really can't narrow it down that much. And uh, Videodrome is one of my all-time favorites, alongside The Shining and Carrie. Uh, off the air, you and I were talking about Hellraiser. That cracks my top six. The Thing, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
And uh, Videodrome is on that list for a couple of reasons. Uh, it's very special to me because my father was an engineer and a systems analyst for Southwestern Bell back in the 1980s. And I watch Videodrome and immediately I'm five years old again because I grew up around guys who looked and sounded and dressed just like Harlan. And I remember when the world kind of looked like that, when to a five-year-old's eyes, everything was all of these computer terminals and TV screens and all of this uh, digital equipment. And uh, that uh, there's just this very strange kind of safe feeling almost for me whenever I watch Videodrome. It transports me back in time to 1980s St. Louis, uh, even aesthetically. Uh, 1980s Canada and 1980s St. Louis were not that far apart from one another. And then also, uh, if you listen to the commentary track on Videodrome, David Cronenberg talks about how one of the ideas behind the film was that he used to accidentally pick up broadcasts coming into Canadian television from uh, Buffalo, New York. And he was always worried, well, if I'm picking up these broadcasts, uh, what else am I going to pick up? And am I, am I accidentally going to see something that I shouldn't see? And growing up, I was a consummate late-night TV junkie. My parents would go to sleep, and I've never been able to sleep well. I've always been something of an insomniac, even going back to the time that I was seven, eight years old. And so I would be channel surfing at all hours. And I can remember thinking something very similar as a kid, like, am I going to flip the channel? And what I expect is going to be on the channel is not going to be there. And it's going to be something scary instead. And so Videodrome strikes this very nice sweet spot for me between uh, being very nostalgic at one on the one hand and then also tapping into this very deep-seated fear on the other hand. Did anyone in your childhood ever call you Padron? No, unfortunately not. <laughs> I got, no, no, the guys at Dad's office, it was sports, squirt, kid, kiddo, but no, I never got Padron. Just just once, just once you deserved it. Like, you know, I think we all did. You know, everyone everyone needs that guy in their life, I think. No, I, I hear you on that. I remember uh, I would, uh, you know, among my first experiences with horror when I was a kid, I would, uh, you know, I would usually spend the weekend at my grandparents at least one night. And, you know, my, my grandmother was kind of a, uh, a horror movie junkie in a way. And she would... Uh, you know, she would watch like uh, nothing like no slashers, you know, nothing like that, but generally like spooky ghost stories. But, you know, I would usually try and watch one or two of those. And then eventually they would fall asleep and the TV would be mine. And I would watch, uh, I remember watching like USA Up All Night and, uh, you know, stuff like that as yes. a kid. But I remember at a certain point, you know, this happened more often than not, I would fall asleep on some, you know, maybe local channel that I had turned it over to at that point. And uh, I would wake up at like 3 or 4 a.m. And, you know, this was this was before the days of like, you know, uh, infomercials and everything running 24 hours. There never being, you know, there, there would be a natural moment where the station would just end its daily broadcast. And so you would be left with like a test pattern or something creepy. And it was always terrifying to me to wake up in the middle of the night and see something like that, you know. And because you, you got to wonder, like, is there anything else going on there? You know, it's just it's. It was always a bit strange to me, uh, which is maybe a weird thing to note. But oddly, every time I watch video drum, I, I'm kind of like vaguely reminded of that. But uh, and I don't, I, I'm, I, I gotta admit, like right here off the bat, I'm so glad that you chose video drums to talk about because 
I adore Cronenberg, and yet for all of the episodes that I've done of this show, uh, you know, only one other person has chosen a Cronenberg movie to talk about. You know, we uh, did an episode of The Fly ages ago, and um, you know, it kind of blows my mind some of the movies that haven't been chosen yet. Hellraiser, which we talked about, is certainly one, but Videodrome too. And I, it's, I've loved this movie since I was a teen. Uh, my first experience with Cronenberg, um, I, you know, of course, I'd read his name in Fango as a burgeoning horror movie nut, and I'd seen The Fly, of course, but I didn't really get into his work until, uh, <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. I, I, I was on summer vacation as a kid, taking a trip to Florida with family, and along the way, we stopped at this amazing bookstore in Lexington, Kentucky called Joseph Beth. And, you know, there I immediately went to the film section to browse, and I found the copy of Cronenberg on Cronenberg. And I just devoured that book on the next 14 hours of the trip. And by the time we got settled in, I was itching to watch everything this guy had made. You know, I went to the nearest video stores and rented everything I could get my hands on. I think I pretty much got his entire filmography, except maybe for, you know, maybe Shivers. Uh, I didn't see until a couple of years later. But for the next week of that vacation, while everybody was, you know, hitting the pool or going to the beach or any of the things you normally associate with the summer vacation trip, I was holed up watching Cronenberg's filmography and rereading the corresponding sections in that book after every single film. And uh, Videodrome just, while it isn't my favorite Cronenberg, and I don't even necessarily think it's his best, it's the one that made the biggest impression on me uh, because I had never seen anything even remotely close to what this film had to offer. You know, it's it's bizarre and it's beautiful and it's terrifying in a kind of cold sort of way. And it's wrestling with big ideas and it was just... It was so damn mind-blowing to this 15, 16-year-old. And it, if I'm being honest, it still kind of has that effect on me all these years later. You know, every rewatch is still pretty powerful. And do you do you find that to be the case? You know, there are so many horror movies that, you know, once you watch them two, three, four times, maybe you can still appreciate them for a technical level or maybe, you know, for nostalgic purposes. But as far as their initial impact, you know, getting under your skin or terrifying you, they're... To me, there are only a handful of movies that still kind of do that. You know, the those films whose power, you know, they don't dim after multiple, you know, uh, repeat viewings. And I'm wondering if Videodrome is much the same for you in that way as it is for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is going to make me sound like the most depraved person in the world. But back when I was still single, uh, Videodrome was one of my standby turn it out at nights and tune outs and doze off movies. Uh, because it never lost any of the impact. And, uh, you know, the very early parts of it have this almost dreamlike ethereal quality to them. And those are the parts of the film that uh, take place so much within the world of the uh, Channel 83 studios. And uh, so it was something that I could revisit time and time again. And if I didn't know what else to watch or if I didn't want to have to engage with something new, I just wanted to have the comfort of something familiar, I'd pop in Videodrome. That that was my standby. No, I hear you. I get that. Like, it's, uh, you know, I, I think I probably wore the VHS out when I was a kid, you know, uh, when I acquired a copy, you know, and watched it over and over again. And then, you know, since I don't think I ever picked up a DVD until Criterion put it out, and then you know eventually that Blu-ray, but uh, which yeah, God bless them for the work they did for that film. But um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm right there with you. Like I I adore the movie. I gotta ask, you know, I mentioned earlier, like it's not necessarily. It's so weird. It sounds like I'm sliding the movie by saying that it's not necessarily my favorite, or not necessarily what I consider to be his best. And yet I'll ask you, like, where does this film stack up for you in his filmography? For me, it's the top of the pile. 
Uh, but at the same time, I acknowledge from a narrative and technical standpoint that it's probably not his best objectively speaking. I would probably have to agree with you that that's the fly because the fly I don't feel has any holes in it. I don't feel it's got any flaws in it. Videodrome, on the other hand, I can recognize it on one hand as a great horror film and a great work of art and something that means a lot to me personally. And then I can also stand back and realize that it's got a lot of hanging threads. It's got a lot of plot holes. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily make sense. Uh, that, that's something that caused me to dig into the film a bit deeper and learn about this whole crazy behind-the-scenes making of story, which uh, just made me even more fascinated with the movie, knowing that it was uh, that it was almost an accident that this thing even happened at all, and that what we have is uh, nothing short of a strange sort of cinematic miracle. Absolutely, and you know, it's funny you mentioned digging deeper into the movie. Like, I... I don't think I'd considered it until this last rewatch and looking over his filmography again in advance of this chat, but a lot of his movies have this kind of sealed off nature to them. Like uh, those worlds only exist for the amount of time that those stories are being told, which you can say is probably true of most movies, but I think even more so in the case of a lot of Cronenberg's films, uh, even something like the fly. I mean, hell that movie had a sequel. And yet when I'm watching it, you know, I don't have any lingering questions about anything there. Uh, you know, a movie that has backstory to it, something like a history of violence. Like, yeah, sure, those characters come with baggage, and yet, you know, that world, that specific world that he creates for that movie only exists for that 90 minutes. That's it. But when I watch a video drone, it feels like there's a larger world sort of extending from the 90 minutes of story that we get. You know, and there are there are a lot of corners. Uh and a lot of nooks and crannies in that universe, I think, that could have been explored. You know, I, I'm i not necessarily keen on anybody remaking Cronenberg, uh, you know, because I think his movies are all pretty much perfect in their own way, or at least they they seem to be exactly what he intended for them to be. And yet, I, you know, I, I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world to, if somebody, maybe even Cronenberg himself, like expanded upon the ideas of Videodrome or updated them for the modern day. And I'm wondering, do you think this is a story that could survive an updating to the modern day? Or do you think it has to be firmly planted back in, uh, you know, the 80s? I think it needs to be set in a pre-internet world in a time before stuff that's so readily available now was so readily available. I mean, essentially... What they're watching in Videodrome are kind of the progenitors to cartel videos uh, or yeah. ISIS beheadings or Taliban propaganda f uh, videos of them executing people. Uh, I mean, in 1983, you could not, like, flip on a television. You could not log onto the Internet and actually watch a human life being taken and although I wouldn't do it if I wanted to right now, I could go to Google and I could have that on my computer probably literally within 60 seconds. And uh, I kind of think that in a way we've we've entered the, the desensitized age that the antagonists of Videodrome were trying to prevent coming about. Uh, you know, snuff 
videos may not be a real thing insofar that I don't think there's some secret cartel out there who kills people and videotapes it and then sells that for profit. But, I mean, there there are videos of people getting killed just floating around out in the world right at your fingertips. And uh, so I do think that you would need to set Videodrome in a world before that was readily accessible and before that was something that's almost become normalized in a way. No, I hear you. And it's funny, like, especially, I don't know why, you know, I try and watch this movie. I revisit it maybe at least, you know, once a year, if not more. And on this last rewatch in advance of this conversation, like, it hit me. Like, I I agree with you. Like, the, the, the movie does have to be set in that time. And yet part of me also wonders, too, like, I... <laughs> I wonder if it didn't nail society in such a way, but it was just, it was made in the wrong time. It seems so far ahead of its time in a way that it only maybe got the technology wrong, if only because that's all it had to work with in the 80s. But it feels like it kind of nailed where we are as a people today a little bit. You know, isn't isn't our Catherine Gray mission essentially like Twitter? Or would it be like a genius bar? You know, would Channel 83 be, God, what would it be? What would be the <laughs> equivalent to that I mean, now, I you think- know? I think it's the internet. So there, there's a part of it that really struck me on a viewing a couple of years ago where Brian Oblivion says, uh, one day, uh, he says, uh, Brian Oblivion is not my real name, it's my video name. And one day we will all have video names that make the cathode ray tube resonate. And it's screen names, it's Twitter handles. Uh, you know, he says that. Uh, Reality is less than television, and television is reality. And he's talking about uh, technology supplanting real life and becoming the medium through which we interact with one another and redefine ourselves. And that's it's the Internet. So do you think there's a chance we're all going to mutate and have, like, you know, uh, uh, stomach openings large enough to accommodate VHS <laughs> tapes? Or is it maybe just going to be large enough for, like, USBs? I'm just curious here. Like, what... What do you think our outlook is in the middle of all this corona craziness? It's interesting because uh, back who, – who did I do it for? I did an interview several years ago with a, with a fellow who's, who's turning himself into a cyborg. Oh, and what? there's this thing called the transhumanism movement. And he has, a, he has an RFID chip implanted in his hand that interfaces with his front door, with his car, with different pieces of equipment in his house. And he he talked to me about a couple of other like biological implants that he's had put in, but that's the one that's always struck me the most. Uh, so I just have this image in my mind of like Darth Vader like swinging his hand and opening doors. But uh, <laughs> there, there is this, yeah, there's this movement, transhumanism, and it is like an attempt to... Uh, use technology to further human evolution into the realm of cyborgs. And, uh, you know, I, I look at Videodrome and I think of that too. You know, I wonder when it comes to those moments, like the movie sets us up to think, of course, that, you know, these are all simply Max Ren's hallucinations. And I was going to ask, like, to you, is that absolutely full stop the explanation for some of the crazier imagery we see in the movie? Or do you think there's a possibility that real mutations are happening? I mean, we are talking about Cronenberg, and it wouldn't be outside the realm of possibility, I don't think, within any of his movies for something that crazy to actually be occurring. And do you ever watch this movie with a different eye each time as to whether or not you know uh, certain crazy things that are happening are in fact reality within the world of the movie? 
I have, and I, I kind of go back and forth on that because I'm looking at the the world of the film itself, and then I'm also thinking about what I know about the production of the film and about like different behind the scenes things that I've seen and different stills of deleted scenes, and I know that there was a point in production where Cronenberg was shooting two versions of scenes, and I've seen stills of like Harlan with like a bloody bullet wound in his hand where he's been shot uh, versus his hand being turned into a hand grenade. And then I'm trying to remember what the other still I've seen was, but it was like there was this idea of showing the audience objective versus subjective scenes of Max's hallucinations versus what's really going on around him, which obviously Cronenberg removed most, if not all of those from the final film. And so I, I think about that and I think, okay, well, we're seeing Max's subjective perspective here. So, yeah, he, he thinks he's mutated, but really he's just running around and shooting people. But then I, I also think to myself, well, even with this going on, there's, there's this whole weird deleted ending that David Cronenberg has talked about in interviews in which I've seen stills of that also where after Max shoots himself, he's supposed to be like transported to the realm of Videodrome. And there was going to be like this weird kind of final orgy sequence with him and Nikki and other people like growing these new orifices and like interfacing with one another. And I remember David Cronenberg saying in this one interview in this very like kind of wry, glib way, something like, oh, and they're all kissing and hugging and everybody's having a good time. Uh, <laughs> and th this is one of the things that I talked with that I cemented earlier when I was talking about these loose threads and open holes, because we, we've got evidence for both these things. And we've also got evidence against both of these things. Um I don't know. I guess it depends on the viewing and I guess it depends on the mindset that I'm in. Because on the one hand, some crazy dude just running around shooting people because he thinks that the television told him to do it is, is very frightening in its own way. Uh, but then on the other hand, I also kind of want this to be a movie about a television signal that mutates people, which is a really great setup for a horror film, too. No, absolutely. And I, I, I have a couple of questions to ask you about that. But the, the first would be, do you think you would prefer a version of that film, like an extended cut of the movie where we actually see the subjective versus the objective points of view? Or do you think it works better just sort of like sliding in and out of each without any sort of signal as to what's going on? I think I do prefer the version that we ended up with because it does leave that thread of ambiguity there. I think that the movie might lose something if it comes down on the side of, yes, these are just hallucinations. This guy has just got a brain tumor and this is what he thinks he's seeing. Uh, I like that there is that possibility that this is a world where people grow VHS slots in their abdomens and <laughs> have like monster cancer guns that cause guys to explode at optical trade shows. <laughs> it's a much more interesting world than perhaps the one that we're currently in. Definitely. I, um, 
I, I, I'll ask you then, too, then, like, if there is the possibility that Max Wren is merely crazy and he's bopping about and, you know, executing people uh, without benefit of, like, a, a, a tumor-firing gun, you know, it's just maybe his Walther or whatever the hell it was, do you think there's a reading of this movie that's valid that there is no conspiracy then? Because I wonder how much we have to buy into you know, the setup that video germ actually causes this tumor that create, you know, the tumors that create these hallucinations in the first place, or is it possible that his madness actually begins in advance of that? Do you think there is a possibility that there is no plot that Barry convex maybe isn't that bad of a guy that there is no such thing as a signal that actually creates this tumor in the mind of, you know, the viewer, or do you think it has to be that for any of the movie to make sense beyond that point? I think there's definitely a conspiracy, and I think that there is definitely technology that drives people mad. Uh, I don't think that Max starts the movie out already on the threshold of a nervous breakdown. I do think that it's exposure to the video drum signal that does drive him crazy. Aaron, I, you know, when it comes to the tumor that Videodrome causes in its viewers. Um, you know, I remember this line from Cronenberg on Cronenberg. I'll probably butcher it, but Cronenberg talked about disease as being destructive, certainly, but also creative in its own way. You know, it destroys, but it's creating something new as well. And I think that's certainly true of, you know, the afflictions in The Brood or, you know, certainly The Fly. Arguably, the car crashes and crash. Um, you know, do you think there is an act of creation going on with the tumors in Videodrome beyond simply killing its viewers or, you know, beyond giving those viewers these insane hallucinations, you know, or do you think that their creation is only meant for that one purpose to, you know, destroy viewers who would be interested in watching, uh, you know, uh, 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 CD television channels late at night? It's interesting, and I think that it depends on whether or not there's any actual mutation going on. Uh, If there is no mutation going on, then it is just this spooky sort of brain tumor that gives people hallucinations, drives them crazy, and presumably eventually destroys the brain, and it functions similarly to brain cancer. But if, on the other hand, if a side effect of this tumor is that it begins to cause actual uh, mutations in the human body, then we're going back to this idea of sort of enforced evolution. Uh, I mean, evolution occurs because of beneficial mutations. Uh, so, so it's interesting that, you know, what side of the film do you come down on? And if you do come down on the actual mutation side, then I would say that there is some kind of growth going on there. It's, it's certainly a very freaky and strange kind of growth. I don't know what sorts of evolutionary advantages, uh, you know, stomach vaginas would have for the human race. Uh, but it's, it's, it's certainly its own bizarre type of creation. And I, I, I wonder, too, then, you know, watching the movie with an eye towards, you know, all this madness, you know, actually maybe occurring, like, I, you know, I, I'm trying to watch, you know, at various times, I, I, I alternate between, you know, viewing the movie with an eye towards, okay, this is not really happening, with, no, this is totally happening, and 
each time I, 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 I don't quite know how to take the ending. Like there is something about the final moment, you know, with the suicide that, you know, sometimes it feels kind of cold and chilling and sad. And then other times I swear, like it almost seems like the moment plays is kind of like a bit of a triumph in a way for Max, you know? And I, I, you know, I guess that just depends on what kind of world it is. You know, if this is just a crazy guy and, you know, his life ends in that ship where he, you know, is mad enough to think that putting a gun to his head is going to, you know, lead him to another world, then, uh, you know, that's awful. But at the same time, like if these are real, then, you know, what what is the next stage of Max's evolution? Do you think that he is going to transcend and continue fighting Videodrome or what what does that man's future look like, do you think? You know, uh, I'm something of a twisted romantic. Uh, And so this is the part of the movie where I think that I want the mutations to be real more than I want it to be, you know, this this sad, damaged man's final hours. Because, uh, like you said, it is, you know, very tragic if this is ultimately the story of a kind of sleazy but basically good guy who got sucked into something that was bigger than he understood and got, you know, corrupted by that, goes crazy, and then, you know, commits suicide by himself in this derelict ship after going mad and killing a bunch of people. That's that's very tragic and that's very sad and that's, you know, unfortunately not very far removed from something true. But on the other hand, if Videodrome is actually this this force that's capable of causing mutation and if videodrome is both philosophically and literally this next stage in human evolution then you know maybe max can transcend and can move on and for as powerful as i think that abrupt ending is i i almost feel like i'd have liked to have seen that coda i'd like to have seen max in the videodrome in this this new body in this new realm i don't necessarily know what it would have meant and i don't know what the actual implications of it necessarily would have been but uh you know there is something strangely triumphant about the idea of of max moving on from there yeah i agree and you know i i had read a similar Cronenberg interview too where he talked about that coda and he mentioned that you know obviously they're kissing and whatnot and they you know in addition to the uh the uh oh god i want to say that there was something similar to in addition to the uh the stomach vaginas there he mentioned that there would be these uh you know very sort of like uh you know, penile protuberances like, uh, you know, the the uh, lead character in Rabid had that would actually present themselves in that sequence, too. And it's just kind of like, well, what the hell would that have looked like? One, but two, I think he said in that same interview something like, uh, you know, it was his version of a happy ending. And yet he couldn't bring himself to actually, you know, put that in the final cut of the movie because ultimately, like, his stance is that of, you know, being an atheist. And so he didn't want to leave viewers with the notion that, you know, there was possibly an afterlife for this character, you know, to find himself in. So, but yeah, no, part of me, I, I, damn it. I kind of want to see that ending. You know, I kind of want to see that version of the movie. Um, and I'm wondering like if that, I wonder if that moment was actually shot, you know, and I wonder like much like the uh, bits of footage that you were talking about too, you know, uh, the objective versus subjective, you know, like uh, the possibility for that kind of cut of the movie. Like, do you think that there is possibly like 
could we ever see an extended cut of the movie one day or would Cronenberg even have an interest in that do you think okay so I have seen a still from a deleted scene and it is Masha and it is Max's two co-workers from channel 83 that he shoots and it's Brian Oblivion and they're all together on the video drum set from an abandoned ending they're fully clothed and Masha is wearing some kind of weird purple, I'm colorblind, it may be pink, but kind of like spacesuit-looking outfit. Uh, so I do know there is some footage of some alternate ending out there in the world somewhere for these stills to exist from. Uh, I would absolutely love to see all of the, the, the bleh, all of the deleted footage, not necessarily inserted into the film, but at least made available as deleted scenes. Uh, that was my one big disappointment with the Criterion DVD, is that uh, I was happy that it was David Cronenberg's director's cut and that some of the footage that had been censored or removed was put back in there, but I would really like to see everything that was actually shot, just because so much ended up on the cutting room floor that there's almost an entire other movie floating around out there. There's there's certainly an entire deleted B story from the movie. Um, Debbie Harry was actually supposed to have been in the film much more, and she actually shot many more scenes that were either outright deleted or were very heavily edited in the movie so that you don't realize she was in them. Uh, the big one that springs to mind is that when Max is being taken to the spectacular optical dispensary where he first meets Barry Convex, and he's riding in the back of a limo, and he's watching the spectacular optical video on the television set, uh, Nikki Brands, Debbie Harry, was actually with him that entire time. Uh, because really? what was Yes, what was originally supposed to happen was she goes to Pittsburgh and she disappears for a period and Max thinks she's dead or missing or the Videodrome people got her and then she was actually supposed to keep popping up throughout the film but never around anybody else and this was supposed to be one of the early signs that maybe Max was going crazy because here was Nikki and she was talking to him and she was only ever talking to him when he was alone is she really there and she's just popping up when he's by himself or are these early hallucinations and the viewer wasn't going to be quite sure. And so she was going to be with him in the back of the limo. I've, uh, I've seen stills of that. I've seen several stills of her with him in the dispensary before Barry Convex shows up because when he's putting on eyeglass frames and trying them on, that was originally he and Nikki joking around with one another because there's there's shots of Debbie Harry like picking up and trying on eyeglass frames with him. And then Barry shows up and Nikki's gone and it's just Barry and Max by themselves. And uh, something that's very telling, uh, if you listen to Deborah, Debbie Harry's commentary on the Criterion DVD, you can tell she's never actually watched the theatrical version of the film because on the commentary she's still referring to this abandoned plot thread and she says at one point 
I'm interested in the character of Nikki because you're never really sure how much of her is really there and how much of what you see of her are Max's hallucinations. And it was interesting to me to play a character who might not be real and and knowing that these uh, plot threads were excised and then hearing Deborah Harry say that, you realize, oh shit, you've never actually watched the movie. <laughs> So, wow, I'm, that kind of explains a bit. One, damn it. Like, I want to see that cut of the movie. But two, that kind of explains a moment, like, later on in the film when uh, uh, Bianca is, uh, you know, noting that Nikki, you know, God, I, I, I cannot recall the line, but uh, she basically notes that Videodrome simply used her image. And the way it plays is that, okay, Max, you know, she was never real. And so, you know, there's, one is led to wonder, like, okay, did they not have that meet cute on the, you know, the the set of that show where they were being interviewed? Like, well, of, of course she has to be real to an extent, right? We see her in action on her radio show. So, you know, what's, what's, what's she talking about here? And yet, you know, if this other plot had been inserted, then, you know, I think... I, 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 I think it justifies that line because then we know that Video Drum would actually be giving him a Nikki that isn't actually there for the bulk of the movie. And uh, something interesting, too, that was supposed to have played into this was the idea of Nikki and Bianca being like two sides of the same coin. And Bianca was kind of supposed to have been the anti Nikki. Uh, I've seen stills, I don't know full details on these scenes, but there are stills of. Bianca wearing Nikki's red dress and then uh, Deborah Harry wearing Bianca's outfit, like this kind of purpley, like buttoned down sort of Diane Chambers looking thing. And from what I can gather, there were going to be these moments where Max was going to see Nikki as Bianca and was going to see Bianca as Nikki. And there was supposed to be this like duality going on between them. But with so many of Nikki's scenes getting deleted, that was something that had to get excised as a part of that as well. I really hope that we can one day see that footage. I hope it exists still. You know, I, I, I hope it hasn't gotten destroyed over the years or has been misplaced or, you know, any number of things that can happen to, you know, an older movie like that. But, you know, also part of me really wants to read Cronenberg's script. You know, I, I know there's a novelization. I think, uh, was it Dennis Etchison uh, did a novelization yes. back in the 80s and it was based on an earlier script. And apparently there is, uh, you know, there, there, there are bits of plot in there that aren't, you know, present in the final movie. But at the same time, like, you know, how, how, how do we not have a Cronenberg library of screenplays at this point, like annotated with, you know, behind the scenes pictures and whatnot? Like, it, it feels like the world deserves something like this. And see, that's another thing that contributes to the kind of haphazard nature of the finished film is that David Cronenberg was like writing the script as they were making the movie. And was coming up with new ideas and was getting rid of old ideas. And I, I've got the novelization. I, uh, I bought it on eBay probably about 14, probably about 14 years ago. I found a copy on eBay and bought it. And you can really tell that this is the work of somebody who is being forced to make it up as he goes along. Uh, because the the book itself has inconsistencies in it. Um Funnily enough, uh, after I got out of college, my very first job was in opticianry, which is something else that gives me kind of this personal link to Videodrome. 
And uh, I tend to pay a lot of attention to people's eyeglasses and the use of glasses in movies because of that. And something that really jumped out to me in the novelization of Videodrome is that the description of Harlan's glasses is inconsistent. And you can tell that it's not that this is a character who owns multiple pairs of glasses. You can tell that in the original scripts, this was a character that was described as looking one way. And then as they cast the actor and as they wardrobed him and the character's visuals began to change with production, so too was the book changing and updating the way the character looked in order to reflect what was going on. And the author didn't have the opportunity to go back and revise because he was working on this so quickly. And so when we first meet Harlan, he's described as wearing these sort of scholarly, uh, old-fashioned, rimless glasses. And then later on, he's being described, and it's reflecting what you see in the finished film when he's outfitted with this more kind of stereotypical 1980s geek look. And it's been several years since I've sat down and actually read it cover to cover, but it, it seems to me that there's a couple of other details and a couple of other plot points like that that shift throughout the book, not in this intentional what's real and what's not sort of way, but in a, hey man, here's the next 10 pages of the script for you to adapt into the book sort of way. Um I also think it's interesting, too, because the book reflects how much of the detail of the movie was in the script. Uh, in the conference room at Channel 83, there are posters on the walls for made-for-TV movies that they have produced themselves. And you see them very quickly in the background. I remember pausing my DVD to try and read the posters and there's this section of the book early on where the posters in the conference room are described in this almost pornographic detail, like getting down to like the nitty gritty of what exactly every one of these posters is. And you can tell, OK, David Cronenberg had an idea for what sort of movies this TV station makes and they've got posters of them and they're hanging up and this is what they say and this is what these movies were about and he bothered to put enough of that detail into the script that the person adapting it into a book felt compelled to put that detail into the novelization as well. And so like you, I would absolutely love to see whatever approximates the final draft of that movie just to see what was the minutia in that script that ended up on screen and what didn't end up on screen that was in the script. Same. I have my fingers crossed that maybe someday we'll come across that footage or, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe Cronenberg will start releasing his screenplays. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice to think. All of them, every single one going all the way back to Shivers. I would love to read, uh, you know, his progression as writer. Although, like, he, he's not somebody who's written every single screenplay to all of his movies, I don't think. You know, I, I wonder how much of him, you know, as an artist is concerned with being considered an auteur because... Wasn't Videodrome his last original screenplay for, well, all the way up until Existence, I think? I think you may be right. I'm, I'm not versed enough in the background of his scripts to be able to say definitely, but I, I believe you're correct, because I'm thinking now Fly's a remake, Dead Ringers is based on a novel. Uh, I think, yeah, I think you're right. 
Speaking of which, I, I just mentioned Existence. Like, to me, that seems like kind of an updating of Videodrome in a lot of ways. Like, it, it kind of, like, follows some of the same beats, you know, in a completely different way. But it, it, it's sort of wrestling with some of the same themes that I think. And even even some of the, you know, the the the, the plot mechanics, I think, you know, as to, well, what with characters, you know, not being certain as to what's reality and what isn't, you know, except, you know, with Videodrome, we're dealing with, uh, you know, television as opposed to Existence, which is, you know, concerned primarily with, uh, what would you even say video games, really? I mean, is that what they were? But um, I, I, I wonder if there isn't a third part of this loosely connected trilogy to come, uh, you know, down the line that might, you know, kind of complete his thoughts on, uh, you know, what, the dangers of entertainment, maybe? I don't know. I don't know, but, I, I, you know, it, it kind of goes back to something you said in an earlier part of our conversation. What would an updating a video drum look like? And I, I think you might have landed on it with Existence. I think that that, in the 90s at least, I think that that may have been uh, the closest that you could get to revisiting and re-exploring a lot of the ideas in Videodrome. Uh, and I mean, I think maybe if you were to do Videodrome today, it might take something approximating a similar tack, this intersection of the internet and games and the the oftentimes toxic culture surrounding online gaming and the toxic culture of the anonymity of the internet. Uh, I certainly think that uh, we are right for uh, this third entry in this this theoretical trilogy. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to see it. I would love to see Cronenberg sort of, you know, uh, which, I mean, God bless him. He can do whatever the hell he wants to at this point in his career. He always could. But I mean, you know, it, it seems like he left sort of uh, the trappings of the genre behind a bit with, uh, well, what would you say? Maybe A History of Violence was the first movie that was, was sort of... Uh, you know, not fully dealing with horror or sci-fi in the way that we expect them to. And I've, I've loved all of, well, I didn't, if I'm being honest here, forgive me, but I didn't care for Cosmopolis that much, but pretty much everything else the man's ever made I've adored. But yeah, I would love to see him head back into that world and see what he might dig up now and what he might create that would be, you know, kind of timely, you know, uh, while still kind of wrestling with those same concerns. And, uh, you know, it's funny watching it again, like, trying to figure out exactly what Barry Convex's plan was, because uh, I think on the surface, it's very simple, but you know, he's targeting viewers interested in, uh, shall we say darker viewing habits, you know, sex and violence and the like. And I, I wonder though, if that sort of like arguably kind of like conservative bent could be read as a bit of commentary on where horror was in the eighties, you know, say specifically with, I don't know, slasher films, or do you think I'm completely off base there? Oh, no, I think that's completely what they're talking about. I think that it is about this uh, this kind of right-winged concern with the rise of violence in the media, uh, especially with horror films, but more broadly with some of the gorier action movies of that decade. Uh, I talked was talking to a friend of mine several years ago about just how bloody of a decade the 80s was, broadly speaking, in cinema. I mean... Uh, it's like for 10 years, we suddenly 
even people who were bothered by graphic violence in movies kind of stopped being bothered for a while and then kind of went back to being bothered being bothered by it in the 90s uh you know, like Commando and Predator were sort of marketed as these broad appeal, like macho action films. Uh, my dad, God bless him, does not like gory, violent movies. Uh, he, you know, raised me up watching Commando and Predator. And, you know, there's a scene in one of those movies where a dude's arms gets like, eh, Carl Weathers, Carl Weathers. This is the scene they keep showing in Arrested Development. And it's this, like, heinously <laughs> graphic scene of his arm getting blown off. And even just thinking about it, it's like, damn. And for some reason in the 80s, uh, RoboCop, look at RoboCop. I mean, that oh was also marketed as this kind of broad appeal, like, come to the movies, like, see Marketed the kids. Cop. Yeah, yeah, there were, there were toys. I, I had the damn Robocop toys, but I couldn't watch yes. the movie when I was a kid. It was frustrating as hell. Yes. And, you know, here this thing was, you know, there's that scene of the guy was, uh, who is that? Or maybe, I know I'm, 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 I'm conflating uh, Ferrer with the other guy, but, you know, the, the dude who gets killed by the Ed, who gets, like, turned into a piece of, like, soppy Swiss cheese. <laughs> I mean, that... <laughs> That is still one of the most violent things I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, and for some reason, that was just this this period. And I certainly think that the David Cronenberg is talking about this uh, this move towards that that was happening even in the early 1980s. And I, I think that there is this intentional sort of conservative thought versus liberal thought going on there. Uh, Brian Oblivion is a professor and he's an academic and he's concerned with the homeless and uh, he's got like this library with all of these esoteric texts and then Barry Convex is a military contractor and is talking about ideologies and about future wars and I do think that there is this very sort of uh, late stage Cold War Reagan versus the USS mentality at play there that uh, Barry Convex is getting ready for this potential future where the wall doesn't come down and, uh, you know, Glasnost and Perestroika never happen. And we're going to need people to be tough and ready and pure and real good Americans or Western citizens in order to take on the evil empire. Uh, I don't think that Videodrome gets talked about enough in the context of Cold War paranoia films because it's it's kind of difficult to remember that those trappings are there when you've got a movie where a man grows a vulva in his stomach and shoves videotapes into it. <laughs> it's a distraction. Uh, absolutely. But no, I mean, yeah, definitely the movie has much more going on in its mind than what's on the surface. But, you know, it's funny you mentioned Oblivion. And I, 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 I wonder how much his aims were meant to be like, obviously, I think he's meant to help people as a word. But at the same time, like, you know, the notion of showing them television you know, as opposed to feeding and clothing them. Like, it's very let them eat cake in a way, isn't it? Like, I mean, of course, you know, Bianca paints it as, you know, he's trying to plug them back into the world's, you know, mixing board, as it were. Or, uh, but at the same time, it's just kind of like, what what, what, what was his plan there exactly, do you think, with the Catherine Great mission? I think he's got this really weird idea 
that whether you're rich or you're poor or you're black or you're white or you're Christian or you're Jewish or you're atheist or agnostic, no matter who you are, everybody watches television. It's this very unifying, uniting force. And I think that this is this uh, other proto-internet thing, the way that the internet is able to bring together people of all sorts of different backgrounds, the way that I can feel connected to somebody in India or Pakistan or Australia right now by by talking to them online and like, you know, directly texting them or Skyping them. And I can literally be connected to another culture and another person. I think that Brian Oblivion's got this weird idea that if everybody's watching television, then everybody is connected and we're all on the same wavelength and we're all seeing the same things and we're all absorbing the same things. And it's this sort of utopian idea that we can all come together and be connected through the uniting power of television. Uh, certainly he's completely insane, but it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a noble idea. It's, it's a, it's a sweet idea. It's a deluded idea, but I see the twisted logic in it. And I think that it's an instance of both the character and David Cronenberg sort of being ahead of their time. Uh, you know, give another 13 years and you can actually achieve that with the Internet. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder, too, like I I was wondering how Max Wren, you know, getting caught up in all this madness and being sort of caught between those two men and being the unwitting agent of both at different you know points of the movie, like. How does he stack up for you as a Cronenberg hero? As well? Because Cronenberg's heroes are never heroes with a capital H. You know, his protagonists are always, you know, a bit flawed and, you know, sometimes a bit over their head. And I, uh, you know, it would be interesting to look at all of Cronenberg's heroes and see exactly what the uniting thread between, you know, or amongst all of them would be. And, but anyway, I, I, I was wondering how Ren stacks up for you and if he sticks out from, well... All the rest. Um, I think that he stands well alongside those guys from Dead Ringers and then alongside uh, alongside Seth Brundle. Uh, something that's interesting to me about David Cronenberg's protagonists is I don't think that he necessarily wrote them well, but he cast them well. Uh, David Cronenberg knew how to get a damn good performance out of an actor that brought a lot of stuff to different characters that I don't think was necessarily there on the page, but where I think Cronenberg sat down with these guys and was like, here's who these people are. And I think that he also cast people in whom he saw aspects of the character. I mean, definitely Seth Brundle. You're, you're seeing a lot of, of, uh, of uh, Jeff Goblin on screen. Uh, you're seeing a lot of the characteristics that Jeff Goldblum brings to many of his characters. But I think that David Cronenberg saw that in auditioning Jeff Goldblum and realized there is a piece of this guy who is Seth Brundle. And I think that with Max Wren, uh, we, we learn very little about him. We know nothing about this guy's background. Uh, through the set dressing in his apartment, we can pick up a few context clues about his personality and his interests. I've, uh, I've always thought it was a fun touch that he's got an Atari. Uh, but the casting of James Woods is just so on point. And 
the characters James Woods plays him is a lot of the characters that James Woods plays. It reminds me a lot of his character in Casino, this uh, very manipulative and oily and sleazy guy who at the same time has this sort of reptilian charisma where you can't help but like him in spite of him and the things that he says and does. There's just something that's so weirdly charming about him. Uh, you know, I'm saying all of this and I'm thinking about the Tiger King and Joe Exotic and uh, how America <laughs> is. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, you objectively like stand back uh, and just think, oh, here's this guy who probably shot a bunch of tigers who might have hired a hitman to try and whack another woman who's certainly very, very unhinged, if not necessarily homicidal, but the guy is, uh, you apparently know... Apparently racist, I, too. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. From all of the scenes that were apparently cut from the documentary. But. Right. And yet the internet has fallen in love with this guy because he's got this weird sorts of what I'll call, again, reptilian charm. And I think that Max Wren is a bit cut from the the whiter side of that cloth, the white-collar cloth, as opposed to a blue-collar cloth that kind of came out wrong. Uh, but, uh, you know, Max Wren is kind of the, <laughs> kind of the white-collar, uh, you know, Joe Exotic in a lot of ways. He is this sleazy, strange creepy dude but he's just got this kind of magnetism about him uh i don't think that the character would necessarily have stood out and i don't think that the movie itself would necessarily hold up without that perfect casting uh something that i've always thought was lacking in video drum is i would have liked to have known more about max i would have liked to have gotten more on him and gotten deeper inside of his head as a person, because I think that there was a lot of fertile creative grounds there. Uh, but I, I'm pleased enough with what's there. Uh, but in terms of who's a more engaging and who's a more interesting Cronenberg protagonist, that is a very tough toy cost coin toss for me between uh, the, the doctors and dead ringers and then Seth Brundle. Yeah, so and you know it is interesting that you pointed out too. Like some of those characters, I think they can only be played by the guys who played them. Like I, you know, maybe some of you know his movies. Maybe you could swap in like you know a Jeremy Irons here or a Viggo Mortensen there. But for the most part, Seth Brundle has to be Goldblum, and Max Wren has to be James Woods. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned like how important casting is. I I gotta say I you know I noted that I didn't care for Cosmopolis that much, but I think Pattinson's quite good in it. But out of all of his, uh, let's say, earlier movies, and this might earn me a lot of scorn, but as much as I love the setup, as much as I love the look, there is something that keeps me at arm's length from Scanners. And honestly, I think every time I watch it, I part of me thinks that Scanners should just be told from Daryl Revick's point of view. Like, that guy has a pulse. You know, he has, like, a beating heart. He has a drive to him that the hero of the movie doesn't and i wonder if part of that isn't the casting you know i i i don't know i don't want to knock the specific actor and i won't name him but you know cameron vale in that movie is not that interesting a protagonist you know and i wonder if you didn't throw jeremy irons in there or my god what would it look like if james woods uh had portrayed that character you know then maybe maybe the movie would be quite different and I wouldn't be so damned cold on it, but that's one of the few movies, actually maybe one of the two movies of his that 
maybe I'm not the biggest fan of. And I think, uh, you know, I think it, a lot of it comes down to, you know, miscasting. Oh, I, I definitely agree. That is the big weak link in Scanners is the casting of that character. And if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that's that actor is actually an artist primarily. Uh, I, I think he might actually have designed the like freaky gyneolo- gynecological tools in Dead Ringers, if I'm not mistaken. And now, now here I am yeah. on this podcast saying this stuff and not knowing this 100%. I really... Um, but I, I'm I'm very certain he's he's actually an artist, and that's how he and David Cronenberg first got hooked up. Uh, I'm I'm scanning my memory banks now, trying to remember if if that's accurate. But the the guy was not primarily an actor, and I can't remember what compelled David Cronenberg to want to cast this guy. But I mean, it, it definitely shows. Yeah, I'm actually looking him up right now too. Um... Yeah, it appears as though he did a cameo in Dead Ringers. It's not saying anything about the... I, I, I want to believe that that's the case, though. I want to <laughs> believe that the guy from Scanners went... I want to believe that the character from Scanners, you know, somehow reformed himself after that final battle with uh, Daryl Revick, and, you know, he just decided to uh, to create, you know, strange gynecological tools for mutant women. I don't know. Uh, that's There's a hell of a movie to be found there as well, too, I think. You know, you know what I think it is? You know, I think I'm convoluting something here. I think that in, de- in Dead Ringers, some of those tools, they end up in an art gallery that is run by that guy. Oh, okay. That makes sense, uh, too. He, is an, uh, he was primarily an artist. That I know 100% is true. And that he he was trained as an artist before he and David Cronenberg got hooked up, but I'm I'm convoluting that he's he's playing like a gallery owner who has these tools in Dead Ringers because there's a scene where I think it's Beverly like sees them displayed in a window and he freaks out and he runs inside and he gets in an argument with this guy. Very cool. One one wonders what video drum might have looked like had someone other than Woods been cast. And, you know, it's funny. I, I really appreciate Woods as a performer on screen. I, 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 I gotta admit, especially on this last rewatch, it was a bit difficult watching the movie in its first few minutes because, you know, there, there's that moment where I have to try and divorce the character that he's playing from the guy he actually is or portrays himself to be on Twitter. Um, but, um, you know, uh, but he is fantastic in the role. You know, I love him in this movie. I love him in most of the movies that he's done. Like, uh, you know, standouts are cop and damn it. Like I uh, say what you care to about the movie. I think he's brilliant in uh, John Carpenter's vampires, you know? And I, I, I think so much of video drum works so damn well because of his performance. And because like you noted, like he, who the hell else could play Max Wren? What actor in the eighties in that age range could have portrayed that character and had been half as effective. Yeah, I'm drawing a blank. Like, as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, okay, who who would be my alternate casting? Um, the only other person that I can conceivably see is if the film were made a couple of years later and you had a young Steve Buscemi in that role. Uh, he's another actor that I think could have brought a lot of that same oily charm and lovable sleaze to the role. And now I'm saying this, and I'm almost sad that there isn't a version of Video Drum that doesn't have a young Steve Buscemi as Max Wren. I will, I will imagine that. In some wonderful alternate universe, this movie exists. Uh, God, I hope so. But uh, 
Sir, I don't know how we did it, but somehow we've reached an hour. It has flown by. Can I ask, before we wrap up, do you have any uh, any final parting thoughts on David Cronenberg's Videotron? Go see it. Uh, see it through the Criterion uh, collection if you can, because uh, there's lots of uh, formerly deleted scenes that have been restored to the film. This is David Cronenberg's edit of the movie. Uh, there's also a lot of great special features on there. Uh, and thanks for listening. All right. Where can folks find you at online, and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? Uh, I'm primarily on Twitter, at Preston Vossel. That's uh, Preston and then F-A-S-S-E-L, all one word. Thank you again so much for being on the show, and thank you for choosing such a fantastic movie to talk about. I, I'm i so glad that this show finally got to tackle Videodrum. I've, I've been waiting for it, and and thanks so much for being the one to actually choose it to talk about. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me on, and uh, have a great rest of the day. Hey, you too. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below, and give us a yell on Facebook or Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. What's this? Videodrome. Torture, murder. <laughs> Sounds great.